0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at EmanuelBirmingham.com. Um, so why don't I pray and then we can get started this morning. How's that sound? Good. Okay. Um, Father, we just invite your presence here with us this morning as we um, think together about your calling in our lives to um, make culture and to redeem culture and to um, despise culture at different points. And so I just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand um, that you would light a fire and a flame for us to take back Um, our lives from passively being shaped to actively pushing back the forces of darkness, God, and being a city set on a hill, a light, um, a lamp on a table. And so we just invite you here now, this morning, your manifest presence. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Um, were there any questions that you kind of had lingering from last week, if you even remember last week, since I didn't have notes? No questions? You guys are ready to move forward then? Can you recap for the people that were here? That's great. Yes. Um, so uh, it was put up this week as a podcast, and great. it was some great editing. Whoever did that, that was the clutch. Um, you would never have known. Um, so, and not just like cutting off the front end, like you cut off pieces in the middle, which was oh, so good. Um, so yeah, that was great. So you can go back on the website and be able to listen to that. But recap was um i didn't prepare recap uh recap is that for the next indefinite period of time we're going to be studying and looking at something called public theology um, which is not like a widely known term but it's basically just um it's basically thinking christianly about everything in our lives that we tend not to okay and so the big things would be things like politics or you know um, social things come on in um, thinking Christianly about politics or sexuality or gender or race or technology or education or healthcare or whatever else, you know, so many different things. Um, and it's not just like ethics. E- ethics does that. Um, but it goes a step further and kind of builds more of a framework for how, like, if Christians were in charge of the major institutions in our society, you know, what would those institutions look like? That's beyond just an ethical question of like, what do I do? I mean, it's a it's a whole way of thinking about uh, a, an item or an idea or an area or whatever it might be, okay? Um, and so um, I've started making the case for why we need to start doing this and thinking about public theology, why we're going to do it for the next while. Um, and then I was about to demonstrate um, that the Bible does this and ask us to do this. Um, And that's where we left off last week. Was that pretty good? All right, so Public Theology 101. um, And the question is, you know, why public theology? You know, and I said last week that public theology is essentially an attempt to allow theology to actively affirm, critique, and condemn, if necessary, our culture. It is an act of creating culture. And a lot of us growing up, maybe if you have in the church, you kind of feel like, you know, we should um, run from culture. We should, um, you know, not let the culture shape us. And, you know, we, uh, that's kind of, but yeah, that's true to an extent, but that puts us on our heels and it makes it, you know, so passive that actually God has given us a call to be active in making and creating culture. And so we looked at this definition of culture, That was kind of the fancy definition, more or less integrated systems of feelings, ideas, and values that associated patterns of behavior and products shared, shared by a group of people who organize and regulate what they feel, think, and do. Um, And then I provided a slightly more theological one, which says, whatever results from God's image bearers interacting with God's good creation. Um, And let's see, I think I might have one more. Yes, I do. Um, Culture is the human imaging. This is good. We'll break this down. Okay. So just hang with me. Culture is the human imaging. So like if we're made in the image of God, that means we are representatives of who God is, what God is like. All right. And so imaging is kind of taking that notion and verbalizing it, like making it a verb. I tried to verbalize. Anyways, um, making it a verb. And so the human imaging of God's community, so he is Trinity, right? So God from all eternity past has never been in want for friendship or relationship because he has always been three, one God in three persons. The father always loving the son, the son always loving the father through the love of the spirit to one another. And so they've had this community for eternity. They've had this communion for eternity and they have been creative (laughs) for eternity. Um, And so culture is the human imaging of God's community, that communion and the creativity by. So how how do we image that by engaging and responding to the meanings inherent in God's creation or like his revelation? So um, Psalm 19 or you can look at Romans chapter one. Uh, tell us that, um, that creation is itself a revelation of God. Um, and so there's two kinds of revelation. There's special revelation, which is our Bibles. And then there's general revelation, which is creation. And so creation is harking forth the, 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 the person and the work of God. Um, and so culture is engaging, responding to the meanings inherent in God's creation in order to create worlds, so to speak, of shared meanings, that glorify God. So, um, you know, uh, in any given culture, that culture has started to take those things that are in God's good creation and fashion them in a way that was not just for one person, but then became something for two people and three people in a community and a village and then a populace. And, and so whether it's a hammer like we all know what a hammer is like there's you know there's places in the world that you would take a hammer and they wouldn't know what to do with it so we've created a world in which we have a shared meaning around this piece of wood that we harvested out of a tree that was God's good creation and this ore this called this metal that we brought out forth out of the ground and then shaped it in a creative way that God made us like himself to do so that we could nail things and put together things, and build things like God does, and then we all share around that, and there's this world that we've created, and every subculture has their own way of doing that with their own things. Does that make sense what I'm telling you guys? Yes? You with me so far? Hey guys, come on in. Um, And there's uh, handouts in the back. Yes? What would the environmentalists say about this? Like, say, Killing the environment, you're like burning down the trees. Like if you've seen the a few of the Star like the first like the prequel trilogy of Star Wars and you know Coruscant, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. might be a good example mm-hmm. of like how Earth could turn out. hmm Yeah, so and are you thinking of like non-Christian environmentalist? Christian and non Christian. Or maybe non I'd say non Christian. Non-Christian. Yeah, so you know, um, you know, this is like painting with a like a really large brush, but like a non, the extreme version of a um, non Christian environmentalist, they have um, very much this flavor of the world is sacred. Like we call it creation, but they would say the environment, nature is sacred. They, they even, I mean, they harken back to something like Gaia, which is this, this sort of ancient god, which is Mother Earth. Um, and so because it is sacred, it should be protected at all costs. And so there's not really justification for using the earth in the way that we do, um, whether that's killing animals or, you know, um, you know uh, maybe it's the, the Keystone Pipeline or, you know, whatever it might be, um, we're, dis- we're actively destroying, not preserving something. Does that make sense? Now, there's truth in a lot of things that environments generally would say. And as a Christian, we have a responsibility for creation care. Like we are, and we'll look at this as we go on, but we are stewards of God's earth. And as stewards, we don't get to do what we want with His work. He's actually entrusted it to us to help it flourish and to become all that He made it to be. And so there's actually a lot of resonance that one would have with environmentalists, mainly because so much of Western culture is predicated on a Christian worldview. And so they just have severed the Christian foundation out of which they are pursuing their activism. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? So that's an initial answer. But we will circle back to things like creation care and environmentalism. Any other questions? Okay, um, so uh, we're creating these worlds of shared meanings that glorify God, because when we make the hammer, we have done something that was like what God has done. He was creative, and He put things together. He designed the world to work a certain way, and we tapped into that design, i.e., that these things can be put together, and then that I can create nails, and I can put nails in wood, and then I can build this structure, because two plus two equals four. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's a deeply theological statement, that two plus two equals four. Why should two plus two equal four? The non-Christian ha- might have a more difficult time answering the why that should happen. Okay? We have the why. All they have is that it does. Um, so, creating shared worlds means that glorify God when we create these things it glorifies him because we are imaging him and it demonstrate love to other humans and demonstrate care for the rest of creation. So that when we are creating culture, um, we are doing so as an act of, you know, on the best end of the spectrum, as an act of love of neighbor. So when we build a home, yeah, it might be for us, but it's also to, sh- also to shelter those that God has entrusted to us. That we have in some ways, even if we don't use the term, covenanted our lives to, namely our family. Right, Um, And so you guys tracking with me so far on this kind of like like heady theological definition of culture. Okay, so culture is really good (laughs) Um, and uh, it is like ingrained in the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at. And I can send any of this stuff to you if you'd like. Um, But I want to just show you the biblical foundations for culture making. and We're going to begin in Genesis one. So I have it on the screen. But if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, feel free to do that. But Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and then we're going to kind of skip through Genesis at key moments, all right? So, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 27. it was very good. So I just want to show you um, four or five, maybe six things. I can't remember. I think it's four, and then a bunch of subpoints. It's on your. It's on your outline. Um, number one, creation is good. So yeah, I mean, if you have a Bible that you can get to without causing too much disruption. Um, I just want to point this out. Maybe this is obvious to you and you've seen it because someone else has preached about it or taught about it. But just if you look at the first chapter of Genesis where the creation story is recounted, well, Genesis 1 3, what does it say? God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, verse 4. And then you get to verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And you gets to verse 12 ish. Let's see. Um, yeah. Verse 12 at the end of verse 12 it, again. And God saw that it was good. And you just keep going through the whole chapter. Uh, t- verse 18, verse 21. Verse 25, so thereabouts, I mean, over and over, after every act of creation, God is affirming the goodness of what he has done. So the first thing we have to realize is that creation is good. The second thing that we have to realize is that creation is revelation. We talked about this briefly already, but I just want to actually read uh, a couple of things to you. So Psalm 19 let me get two Psalms. What? what? There we go. Psalm 19. And it's interesting, the first half of the Psalm uh, is all about creation as revelation. And the second half of the Psalm is all about God's Word as revelation. So you have both kinds of revelation here. You have general revelation, and then you have special revelation. But in verse 1 of Psalm 19, The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare. It's like they're personified. They're speaking. The heavens declare. They're telling us there is a glorious God out here. Come look and see. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above that you look at, it proclaims, it heralds, it preaches (laughs) his handiwork. Like, look at all the stars that he has made. This is unfathomable day-to-day day, pours out speech every single day. It is yelling at you. It is speaking a million miles a minute, trying to get you to see, to recognize. It pours out speech and night-to-night night reveals, there's, there it is, reveals knowledge, something that you can know. It reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, verse 3, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Talking about the words of creation. In them, God has set a tent for the sun. So he has put the sun, his actual literal sun, not the sun sun, but like the sun in the sky sun. He's put that in the tent of his proclamation of who he is through creation it is shrouded and you can't help but look at the sun if you have any sense and think that's unbelievable. And how much more so in our day when we know that the sun is 92 million miles away and we can still be physically harmed by it. That's insane. It's, so, so it's, In a tent, right? Um, Which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Or just to be even maybe more specific, you can look at that Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Yes. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because they are suppressing uh, the truth by their unrighteousness. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How is that possible? Because we're talking about people who've never heard the gospel before, right? I mean, these are people who I've met in Thailand, in India. These are people who I've met in Tunisia who have never heard the name of Jesus, and yet the Bible says that they know God. He has shown the truth to them. Verse 20 For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So creation is. Is revelation. Number three, creation is unfinished. Creation is unfinished. So, going back to Genesis chapter one, because what do you mean that creation is unfinished? I purposely made that a little provocative. I hope it perked up your antennae. Um, creation is unfinished in the sense that when you get to verse 28 of Genesis chapter one, it says that, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and there you can underlie it, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. A lot of theologians think that when you look at Genesis chapter one, that what God was doing in creation is he was bringing forth out of nothing that which we see for sure. And he was ordering all of those things that which he brought forth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish, all these things, right? He was bringing order to chaos. The very first verse or second verse, it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the deep. And this was his presence beginning to bring order into chaos. But... We have reason to think that there was outside of the garden still a chaotic world out there that had only been partially ordered so that he can say to the man, part of your mandate on this earth as you fill it and take my glory as my representative across the face of this planet so it would be filled with me is to do what I did, is to finish the work, is to subdue creation, to order it as I have begun to order it. Does that make sense? So creation then is unfinished in that sense. And we have the calling to finish it, so to speak. So number four, we are image bearers. We are image bearers. What does that mean? Well, as image bearers, we are image bearers who are, number one, relational. Relational. So part of being made in the image of God is that we were made for relationship. As I've already said that God is Trinity. One God in three persons. He has always had fellowship with himself for eternity past. And he will always have a fellowship with himself eternity future. He's perfectly loved himself. He is perfectly treated himself. He is perfectly cared for himself in every way. He did not create you and me because he was lonely. He needs nothing from us. Friends, verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Like he could have just had Adam and Eve, like, because he already didn't even need them. So he could have just said, Adam and Eve, like, you're good. Like this whole planet is yours. But because they're made in his image, you can't really stop there because relationship and love just issues forth into the creation of more. And so he says, fill the earth, subdue it. Um, you get to, um, well, second or B, we are also, as made in his image, we are those who are caretakers. So chapter two of Genesis, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and Eden to work it and to keep it. The word there, shamar, to keep, to maintain. There is a stewardship there. Because again, as I said, in answering the other question, we were already kind of looking ahead. We are to shamar the planet. We are to take care, to have stewardship over it. It is not ours. And it is the height of human arrogance, which has been historically to think that we can plunder it for our benefit. Now we use it because we are made in God's image, the crown of his creation, and he is given every good thing for our benefit. But let us not get confused and think that it is for us. It is for God and we are for God and he uses it to benefit us. So we are stewards. We are caretakers, but we are also cultivators you see in that same verse the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it to work it so if we were shamaring before we were taking care of now we are avad we are working serving tilling and it's interesting the same word avad in the hebrew scriptures is also used for worship Man, if you don't need a pick-me-up for, not tomorrow because a lot of you are off work, but Tuesday when you go back to work to feel like, man, like what am I doing with my life? Well, when you work, you're very literally worshiping, or you should be. God made you to work. This is not a result of the fall. He made you in His image to be a working being because He is working. Even now, John chapter 5, I think, says, and so you were made to work, to serve, to till, to worship. Genesis 128, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's that working. You're subduing, you're pushing back creation, taming creation and have dominion, rule, or kingship over, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we have We have um, filling, alel, we have um, shamar to subdue, um, and we have uh, radah to rule over, to have dominion. To have dominion is to subjugate, to put under. But again, in a redeemed culture, this is not us abusing which is oftentimes, unfortunately, in the Bible, what the same word tends to mean because the rest of the Bible up until Genesis 22 is unredeemed. It's groaning, and and man is unredeemed. The Hebrew verb, um, let's see, what is this word? Uh, Oh, yeah, kavash and radah entail respectively repressing and subduing or subjugating someone or something Who or that resists and opposes an enemy of the exercise of authority. That for the most of the Old Testament is what that word means. But in the beginning here, before the fall happens, we have this positive subjugation of creation to do what God made it to do. You guys with me so far? Makes sense. Any questions? Lastly, we are those who are culture makers. Um, Whether for good or for ill, we will create and circulate culture wherever we go. We can produce culture centered on ourselves like Cain and his descendants who produced some of the first cities. Genesis chapter 4 verse 17 some of the first tools, Genesis chapter 4, verse 20 and 22, some of the first arts, Genesis 4, 21 and 23 and 24, and sciences. We can do it to glorify ourselves or to glorify God. Or we can be like those at Babel who sought to usurp God with their architectural feet intended to make a name for themselves, Genesis chapter 11 says. Or we can produce culture that displays God's glory in living, working, and playing in a way reflective of his design. There is a Christian way to do everything. You know that, right? Because what we have that the rest of the world doesn't have, so to speak, is a way to know the blueprint. God created everything with a design and a purpose. He created relationships with a design and a purpose, marriage with a design and purpose. He created creation with a design and purpose and us to use that creation with a design and purpose. And so there's a way to do it wrong. And if you look across higher education today, you'll see that over and over again because they don't have the unifying uh, key to all of knowledge, (laughs) but we do now. We can't know all things, but we have the ability to perceive the unity among or amidst the diversity of all knowledge. Whereas everyone else, these are just discrete things that they can maybe perceive parts and bits of how things might work together, but even then it's in the wrong way. I want to show you some, that's Old Testament. I want to show you some New Testament now. All right. So um, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So Jesus says in the next verse, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And these are not, friends, if you're like me, a tendency to read these verses in your personal quiet time, devotional time, and you think these are moral things that I do every day. If I do moral things then people are going to see my father in heaven and they're going to praise him. And somebody's going to get saved at, you know, work or whatever. And, and, you know, sorry, that just, just doesn't really normally happen. I mean, it's like, you need to be moral, but your Muslim co-worker is also very moral, typically speaking. Right. And so there's more going on here than just morality. It's not less than that, but there's more than that. There's not just morally good deeds, but it's all that we do. Hence, just to go back, hence, you are the salt of the earth. Like, that's all encompassing everything, the world, you're the light of the world, not you're the light of your church or your little community, but like he, there's this expectation that the entire world should be affected by your presence. And you are a, it's interesting that he uses the word city or, and I can't remember what the Greek word is here, but, um, a Greek word for this is polis, which is where we get the term politics. Now, there's also a, a Latin term that is, it has a derivative there as well. But, but yeah, like, you are a new politic <laughs> set on a hill. Like, the way that we engage in, um, in arbitrating our issues of what it means to live together, and that means forming laws, that means building bi- buildings and institutions and education. I mean, this is all the stuff of politics. That's what it means to be a polis, a city. You have to do that stuff. You have to find some shared way to figure it out. We're supposed to be a different kind of city set on the hill that everyone else can look to and say, ah, that's what we're after right there. Now, I wonder, friends, do you feel like the American church is a city set on a hill? Occasionally. Occasionally? Can you think of a good example that you'd like to encourage us with? Because I think we all need a little bit of encouragement on that. Uh oh. <laughs> Good time, buddy. <laughs> Shannon's thinking of one. Um, I'm listening to a podcast that's by Not First, and they're, uh, they're kind of complaining in one about how all the, the institutions that we have set up in our country that are to help people, you know, feed the homeless here for this day. like all these like social goods are tied up in religion and they're really like, complaining about that you know I think the Holy Spirit didn't mean, like praise God like, yeah. like, like God's people doing good work like, yeah yes amen to that amen to that yes that has been historically true and it is presently true and um and that should be an alarming to them um it should tell them something Because as bad of a rap as we have as a church, you know, um, as a universal church, because we are broken and sinners, and so obviously we're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. Um, There's the other side of the coin that we very rarely talk about. And, I mean, we basically built the help industry of Western civilization as we know it. Hospitals, education, hospice, fill in the blank, adoption and foster care. I mean, all of those things were not birthed out of secular worldviews. It, became, it came from a deep compassion for those made in God's image. So that's a great example. Um, Colossians, so if it's not just morally good deeds, then if, if it's truly all of life, then the rest of the Bible should tell us this too. And so Colossians 317, whatever you do in word or deed, So whatever you say, like, whatever you say, that's anything. Who knows how I mean, I think somebody probably Google this, like the average amount of words that someone says in a day, but however many that is, I'm sure they're not just all about, like, Jesus. Hey, everybody, let me just talk about Jesus all day long so that everyone knows about Jesus. No, you talk about family affairs, you talk about school, you talk about work, you talk about problems, you talk about family, you talk about math, you talk about all kinds of stuff. So whatever you do in words, or D, you do all kinds of things, too, right? You don't just get to be in church all day. You don't get to just read your Bible all day. I mean, you know, pastors get to do some of that, and that's a great benefit, and it's a benefit for all of us, right? But, but your average person doesn't get to do that. So whatever you're doing, the normal things that you do to live and sustain yourself, do it all, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Like, it should be done in a way that would be recognizable to Him, Giving thanks to God the Father through Him, but you know what? It's not just there either. It's First Corinthians. It's First Corinthians, chapter ten. Paul says again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I could name some other things. He says, but you know, I'll just say whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The glory, that word right there. Um, is also tied to the concept of the image of God. You'll see it used in the Old Testament. I wish I had thought of that. I'm thinking of this off the cuff, so I don't have the scripture reference for, for you. Um, but I can look it up later. But, um, but the, the Old Testament directly ties... Um, is it, no, actually, it's in 1 Corinthians when they're talking about head coverings. And it says that um, that man is the image and glory of God, just as woman is the image and glory of man, or something like that, right? Um, And so there you have image and glory tied together. And so when you see in Romans chapter three that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that's not just like, oh, some are imperfect. It's actually bigger than that. It's actually hearkening back to Genesis chapter one that we've looked at and said that there was a mandate on our lives as being made in his image and that we have failed to do. We have fallen short of the calling to do that. And so the redemption of that is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory, the imaging of God. Make sense? Okay, I'm getting excited. Are you excited about this? I'm excited about this. Um, Jeremiah. So because whether you're a plumber, an architect, a painter, an artist, a lawyer, a doctor, a politician, a school teacher, or a myriad of other things, which I hope we have a lot of those represented in this room, people over time should see what you do and they should Marvel. They should say, that is familiar because I'm made in the image of God, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe I should ask them. But I, I, think, I think when Jesus calls us to be a city set on a hill, he may be thinking back to the prophet Jeremiah. I, I don't know. I can't say that, so don't hear me say the Bible is saying. But I think it's possible he was thinking back to the prophet Jeremiah's exhortation to the exiled Israelites in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah tells them, he says, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile "'from Jerusalem to Babylon.'" So you have Israel, they're in exile for their sins. And being in exile is not like going, you know, on vacation or whatever, it's not fun. You lose everything, house, home. I mean, think about the refugee crisis over the last decade or so. And these are people who had, you know, bank accounts, right? who no longer have the money in those bank accounts and have no way of ever getting those things back. They've lost literally everything. They've lost their home. They've lost their money. They lost their profession. I met a doctor one time who is from Iran who can't practice medicine here. Sorry, not medicine. Um, It was something crazy like astrophysics. He can't practice that here. He can't get a job here doing that, even though he has the knowledge and the education, because the american educational institutions won't recognize his degree from iran and so he's jobless or he's forced to become a you know janitor which there's dignity in that but when god has gifted you with the skill set that he has then there's a responsibility to use that and he felt that even though he wasn't a christian which is so interesting and so you know, being an exile is not a walk in the park. You can be taken advantage of because you have no way to defend yourself. Sometimes the legal system is even pitted against you because you're not a legal citizen. So there's all kinds of difficulties. And so, so he's talking to the Israelites in this context. And what does he tell them? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Ah, you remember that, that multiply where we've heard that recently in the last like few minutes? Genesis chapter one. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here it is. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And I think Christians, that is the call of the hour today that we are exiles in this world, marching towards our heavenly city. That is to come a better city, but on our way there, there's an element of making ourselves at home. There's an element of seeking the welfare of the city that we live in, and this side of heaven, because in making it better, we will be better, right? Like, we are the ones who are building the hospitals. We're the ones built. We used to. I mean, not as much anymore. What would it look like for us to be those kinds of Christians again? where we're the ones who are known for the educational institutions and the state of the art hospitals and amazing, um, amazing orphan care. Like, may it be so, Lord. All right. So it's 1010. We got to get kids, I think. Right. So any final question? Let me pray. And then if you have a question, I can hang for like two seconds and then I'm preaching today, everybody, um, which is, uh, you know scary, so pray for me. Um, Lord, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. Thank you for answering my prayer, descending upon us, helping us to learn and to be transformed, to change, to buy into this calling on our lives. And I pray that we would all have a fire that's been stoked today to live this week differently than we did before. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.